Okay, everyone. Good evening. The shear um, tonight is available for all the listeners. Anybody that wants to retroactively grab the shear could be yours. Let me know. Um, we are now started a new Sefer, a new Sefer in the Torah. We started Sefer Devarim, the book of Devarim. And in Sefer Devarim, which is exciting, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, we made a chlufi dechtayu. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu has, um, is addressing the Jewish people. The book of Devarim begins with Eilah HaDvarim. These are the words. Ashadiba Moshe, that Moshe speaks, so call Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu is addressing the Jewish people. And the Torah says, where Moshe Rabbeinu was when he, when he spoke. And he, and he, now, we know that this whole book of the fifth book of the Torah is called Mishneh Torah. Mishneh Torah means it's a review of the Torah. We're going over most of them, or many of the mitzvahs, and so on and so forth. It also contains within itself um, a rebuke at the beginning. Moshe is rebuking the Jewish people and kind of, um, you know, telling them when they went wrong, how they went wrong. And obviously, it wasn't just to put them down; it was in order that they should learn from their previous mistakes, so that they can make a tikkun, they can make some kind of a correction. The interesting thing that right away pops out of the Pasuk, which we can all take note, is when the Pasuk says where Moshe was and the Jewish people were when this whole... Now let's just, before that, when did this take place? This took place a month and a half before Moshe, a little less than a month and a half, about a month and a week before Moshe passed away. Because Moshe passes away on the seventh day of Ador. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu began uh, saying the book of Devarim and repetition of the whole Torah 37 days earlier. On, um, on the first day of the month of Shvat. The month of Shvat, Moshe begins to explain the Torah. He reviewed it with them in 70 languages. And at the end, he brings them into a new covenant with God, in addition to the covenant that they had at Sinai, at Har Sinai. He gives them the blessing and the opposite of the blessings, just in case. And we conclude with, you know, Vayelech Moshe, Moshe goes on the very last day of his life. That's in the end of Deuteronomy, in the end of Sefer Devarim. And Moshe tells them, I'm 120 years old today. He reached his 120th birthday, which was also the day of his passing. At that time, he sings the famous song of Hazinu, the Shira of Hazinu, in which he brings heaven and earth to testify about all that is going to happen. And then he gives this final parting blessing to the Jewish people, V'zei Sabrocha, Moshe passes away. And that's the summary of the book of Devarim. So we're talking about the last 37 years, days of Moshe's life as he is conversing, as he is speaking with the Jew Jewish people. So now the Torah says where they were. So last week we learned there were 42 journeys, 42 encampments. 
This is at the 42nd encampment. This is the last place. Where are they? So the Pasuk says, They are on the other side of the Jordan. Obviously it means they were on the eastern side of the Jordan. Because when they crossed the Jordan going west, they would be in the territory of the land of Israel. Last week we learned in the Chumash, Parshas Masay, the Torah delineates or, or describes the borders of Israel. And the border, the eastern border is the Jordan River. It runs across the Jordan River. They were on the eastern side. And that means if they cross from east to west, they'll be in Eretz like they actually did. Right after Moshe passes away, Yehoshua, Joshua, brings the Jewish people across the Jordan and he takes them into the land of Israel. By this time, all the people that are there, no one is going to die anymore. This whole generation is ready to go into the land of Israel. And Moshe is giving him a pep talk right before he passes away. This is this last, last talk that Moshe speaks to the Jewish people. So the Torah says it was Be'ever Ayardain, and the other side of the Jordan. Then the Torah gives a whole other a bunch of things that are in, in where they were, but Rashi says that's not really where they were. That's just hinting to sins they did at various different places. The only place which is actually referring to actual place where they were standing then is Be'ever Hayardain, and the other side of the Jordan. Now what's interesting is that the Jordan is a very, is a long river. It goes across the entire, it goes for many, 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 many miles. Many miles, the Jordan River. The Jewish people were not camped along the entire Jordan River. They were in a specific, in a specific location. In terms of Israel, they were in the southern east, they were southeast, the southern eastern, uh, southeast of the land of Israel, at the bottom. The Jordan River goes all the way up and it, it meets the Kinneret, uh, and it goes up higher, and that's, that's, that's going up towards Syria, all the way high up, up, up. The Jewish people weren't standing there, they were at the bottom. In which particular place were they? They were in a place called Arvos Moab. Arvos Moab means the plains of Moab. Flatlands, I guess plains means flatlands, right? Flatlands of Moab. And that's where they were standing right now. Now, um, the Chumash doesn't say that they were in Arvos Moab. So that needs some understanding. Why do, don't we tell us where they were standing in Averhayardane? They were in the other, the other side of the Jordan, but we don't know which location. So the Torah should have added, and to further strengthen the question, this pasuk, which begins the fifth book, is immediately after. Yes, there is a little space of four lines in the Torah, but it's immediately after the fourth book. The conclusion of the fourth book, which is the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, in the last pasuk, it says, Eila mitzvah vamishpatim, these are the commandments and the laws. Shatsiva Hashem Bayad Moshe that God commands in the hand of Moshe, Obene Yisrael to the Jewish people. Ba'arvois Moyov in the plains of Moyov, Ayarden Yerechai at the Jordan River next to Jericho. So over there as well, it says the Jordan River. But it says explicitly, Arvois Moyov, the plains of Moab. More than that, it mentions the Jordan River only secondary to the plains of Moab. In other words, the main place where they find themselves, the main location, the main identifying mark 
where they are, are in the plains of Moab, because that's where they were. Within the plains of Moab, the Pasuk is saying you should know that it's, next, it's, not, it's right next to the Jordan. So it's basically a description on the plains of Moab. It's giving you a description on the plains of Moab. We're in the plains of Moab. It's next to the Jordan River. Or it's telling you that could be the plains of Moab was quite a wide area, quite a, a, a big place. The section of the plains of Moab that is next to the Jordan River. But according to the Torah, if you're using Google Maps and you want to click in where the Jewish people are, you would put in Arvos Moab. That's where they are. Location, Arvos Moab. You turn the page, one page, or in the Sefer Torah, you skip four lines, empty lines, because it's a new, a new Sefer, and you start reading, These are the words that Moshe speaks, and again it tells you the location, it suddenly changes the name of the location. Now most people, by the time they get to Parshas Devarim, they forgot everything they read in Parshas Matis Masse, right? <laughs> we forget what we read last week. We definitely don't pay attention necessarily to the last verse. So because of that, we're not really reading it carefully, so we don't notice that there's something. Hey, what happened? It's like if I was describing to you, you know, Monday night we stayed in a hotel so-and-so, and I give you the name of the hotel or the town that we were in. And then I say Tuesday we left, and we went on, but when I say we left, I give you a whole different name of the location where we just were. Describing it by a complete different idea. We left the bottom of the hills. You didn't tell me you were at the bottom of the hills before. Say, why would you give a complete different location? Why? I, now, it's not a complete different location because it does mention in the last Pasuk that it was Al Yardain Yerechai next to the Jordan. But again, the main description is Arvos Moab, the plains of Moab. And suddenly, one verse later, the Torah changes the location's name, it's the same place, and gives you a more vague description that it's by the banks, it's the other side of the Jordan, and not telling you even we're on the other side of the Jordan. Just that it was on the other side of the Jordan. Now, typically you can argue, say, you don't have to tell me where they were, because you just told me the verse before that. But that's not, that, that wouldn't be a good argument, that wouldn't hold out, because it's a nuchumish. It's a new chumash. If it's a new chumash, it is, you know, you have to like, it, it, it's obviously a new subject. You might want to refresh. Where are we? What's going on? It's a new lesson. It's a new chapter. So we got to go back. I got that. But you're going back. Go back and be consistent. Again, it's definitely, they didn't move from that place. That's where it happened. Moshe reviewed with them the whole Torah and Arvos Moav. So why don't we call it Arvos Moav? That's the question. Pretty simple question. Now, actually, if you continue a few psukim further in Sefer Devarim, in our parasha, um, we're going to um, fast forward one, two, three, four verses further. We were, we, we were talking about verse number one, Pasuk Aleph. Now we're talking about Pasuk Hay. And again, the Torah gives a description where this is taking place. Be'ever ayardain, in the other side of the Jordan, that's consistent. Be'eretz Moav in the land of Moav. Ooh. So here we are telling us in the land of Moav. Which, were, which, which for whatever reason was omitted earlier in the beginning. In Pasuk Aleph it was omitted, but here it does mention Be'eretz Moav. So kind of it seems that things are smoothing out. 
Okay, it didn't tell it to us in the first Pasuk, but it tells it to us in the fifth Pasuk. That we're, because you might be still puzzled, we're on the other side of the Jordan, where are they? As I mentioned earlier, it's many miles. Where exactly were they? Oh, in the land of Moab. In that particular area of the Jordan, the land of Moab. So first of all, it changes from the plains of Moab, and it gives you a more general description. The land of Moab, that's, that's first of all. But in addition to that, if you pay close attention, you see it's a different description than you had in the last parsha. In last parsha, location on the map is the plains of Moab. A detail in understanding we're in the plains of Moab is by the Jordan River. So the Jordan River is not the primary location. The Jordan River is just a subtitle or a clarification on where exactly they are in the plains of Moab. But the general location is the plains of Moab. But when it comes to this parsha, so in the first Pasuk, in the beginning, it doesn't even mention at all Moab. All it says is the other side of the Jordan. Right? It doesn't even say where. And even when it does, it repeats again. They were where? In the other side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab. So the land of Moab is coming to give, is a detail, a little clarification, a, sub, uh, a subtitle, so to speak, to the main name and, and uh, location where they are, that they are on the other side of the Jordan. So what you see over here is a clear change. The very same place the Jewish people are, are, have, are standing, the Torah, in the fourth book of the Torah, in Sefer Bamidbar, that place is called the Plains of Moab. And in Sefer Devarim, the fifth book, this very same place is called the other side of the Jordan. And even when we mention the other detail, it's, it's in a reverse order. In Bamidbar, when we mention the Jordan, it's just to help you know where in the plains of Moab they are. And in um, the, the Devarim, when it's mentioning the, the, it's, the location is the other side of the Jordan, it mentions the plains, the, the land of Moab, just to... Uh, just to um, uh, you know, a, a pinpoint the location as a detail of that. So you see clearly that the Torah has got something. The Torah is obviously very precise and, and everything is, is accurate, Sheba accurate. We're talking about a divine God's book. So I'm sure he had it looked over by some really good editors, right? To have it be done really, really good. And it doesn't seem like it's been written too, too accurately. You know, you put in a paper like this, and when you're writing something, uh, you would get uh, some points taken off for writing like this. It's not good writing. So obviously, we got, we got, we got. A, the Torah wants something over here. So the Rebbe says the answer is very simple. <laughs> he gives the answer that's so simple, on the literal level, and then he. And then he reveals the deepest secrets of existence in this, in this difference. So that's what the coolest about the Rebbe is. It's a little detail, a little thing. No one hardly notices it. Who makes a big deal about it? He gives a technical answer, which is a great technical answer, a short little answer. But w once you probe deeper, and he probes deeper, this is a, and, and we'll find out, is the most important lesson for us and our generation. It's, it's crucial. It's crazy. This is, this is where it's all at. 
in this tiny little thought that he's going to reveal now, in this tiny little discrepancy, everything is there in, in, in terms of our entire experience of, 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 of everything. Now, what is it? So the simple answer is as follows. There is a fundamental difference between the five books and the book of Devarim. The five books, up until now, were all telling us what happened. We're looking, when Moshe Rabbeinu is writing the, I'm sorry, not five books, the first four books, Moshe Rabbeinu is took, standing this way, and he's writing down from the story of creation, he's standing backwards, he's looking back from the story of creation and telling us about Bereshis and then Noah, and then Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and then telling us the entire, when is he writing the Torah? At the end of the 40 years. Or maybe according to one opinion, the Torah was written piece by piece, but whatever it is, He's accumulating, putting it together of everything that happened in the past. It's the story of the past. Until we reach this point. When we get to this point, Moshe Rabbeinu is turning around and facing forward. Because this book is not about the past. This book is about the future. Why? He's prepping the Jewish people to go into the land of Israel. They're getting ready to start keeping mitzvahs. They kept mitzvahs in the desert, but that was like kind of practice. It wasn't real mitzvah observance. The real mitzvah observance is to do them in the land. So many mitzvahs they couldn't even do until they entered the land. Even the mitzvahs that they did outside of Eretz Yisrael doesn't have the same potency and power like the mitzvahs that they were going to do when they, when they went into the land of Israel. So he is now getting them ready to fulfill their purpose and their mission in this world by entering the land of Israel, conquering the land, building a base on Migdash, setting up God's headquarters in this world and becoming the light upon all the nations. That's, he was preparing them for that. And for that he was rebuking them and, 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 and educating them and giving them all the resources that they need, empowerment for them to be able to do their job. So it's fundamentally different, the book of Devarim, than the book of Bamidbar. And now we'll understand very, very, the reason why it changes its name. You see, the very same location that they're standing on could be seen as the last, as the last stop of their previous journey, or it can be seen as the preparatory staging point for their next phase, which is the most important phase in which they're standing are, at right now. In other words, is this a staging ground for the next or is this the grand finale of a journey that they did till now? So we spoke last week, it was a 42-pronged a 42 journey. And that there was an incredible significance of those 42 journeys and places that they went and stopped and went and stopped. And they were doing incredible cosmic tikkunim. They were doing unbelievable work. And we're going to see soon the work that they were doing in the 42 uh, encampments was, was, was basically the equivalent to all the work we the Jewish people do in the diaspora. Like doing and fixing and fixing, fixing all the problems around the whole world. They were doing it concentrated in the headquarters of the Klippa. So they were fixing, repairing, elevating, slaying, killing the scorpions, the snakes, ridding the world of the most vile creatures spiritually that exist. And Part of that battle with evil and with darkness was where, and not only that, we're soon going to see the climax of that darkness was to deal with the Moabites and reach the plains of Moab. And that's the, 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 the grand conclusion of their previous work. 
That's why the Torah calls it Ba'arvos Moav. This is now the last and final link of that long chain sequence of events and episodes and what we would call, uh, you know, their saga, their story, their battles. And they reached, each place was its own battle. And, they, and, and once they conquered Arvos Moav, they were, they were done. Now Moshe Rabbeinu calls out and he says, about face. You ever see that? When the, when the marchers, when, the, when, the, when, the, when soldiers are, when they're a parade and they're walking and they're facing one way and then the, the general calls out about face. I don't know why I remember seeing a parade like that, right? And suddenly in one second, everybody turns around and faces the other direction because a 180 degree turn. And that's what happens right now. Now Moshe is saying, you see the other side? We're going into the land of Israel. And that's why when the Torah refers to, the, and in order to illustrate this, that this is a new chapter, this is not about the, 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 the previous journey, about all the darkness, and all that we'll see soon. We'll see, see, so, see soon. <laughs> what this all means. It's not about that. Now it's a new story. Now you've got to get ready for a different type of work. And that is entering the land of Israel. And that's why, why, how would the Torah name this place? Not as one of the places of the desert that characterizes a certain nation, a certain place that we need to fix, that we need to uh, do some kind of a tikkun. No, no, no. We are considering this place in its relationship to the land of Israel. It's the other side of the border. That means you're at the banks of Eretz Yisrael. Because the name, almost at this point, the name doesn't have anymore its identity of its own. Its identity is that it's a staging point from where you're going to cross the Jordan. Now Moshe can't take them any further because he can't take them into the land of Israel. So he stops right at the border. And where is this? Ever Hayarde. This is right before the border crossing. And he's speaking to them now. Because this is not about their previous uh, journey uh, now we're redefining the place that they're standing as the preparatory staging ground for their next phase as a Jewish people going into the land of Eretz Yisrael. And that's why it has, when we say Ever Hayardain, what are we saying? We're defining the place not by it, but by where it's next to. It's next to, it's close to, it's attached, it's at the border. It's like when you go down uh, the San Diego and you start getting uh, very close uh, to the uh, south. Uh, what is the place over there called? I forgot to read the name of the towns. And you start seeing already the signs uh, buy uh, Mexican insurance uh, for your car. You can buy, <laughs> you start seeing already, you don't see the, the signs yet, welcome to Mexico, but you see kind of the, uh, <laughs> the you, you get the sense that you're already at a border town. And that's what this is, a border town. Aver Ayardin, the other side of the Yardin. And now we'll understand also uh, another question, which I failed to mention before, related to us. Remember I said it in Sefer Devarim, right over here it mentions twice the name of this place. But the first time it calls it, just in Devarim itself, it just says Aver Ayardin. That's all it says on the other side of Jordan. Second time it says the other side of the Jordan and the land of Moab. So, 
in addition to this that we're saying now, that the main definition is that it's the land other side of the Jordan. We don't care so much that it's the land of Moab. That's just in order that we should have an idea where we're standing. But, so, but the main definition of the place is the other side of Jordan. There is really a good question. When you are referencing something, where will you spend time to explain the detail of it right at the beginning, the first time you mention it? The second time when you're making reference to it, a second time you're just going to say it briefly. Here, Torah does the opposite. The first time, the Torah gives the briefest description. doesn't give you any details. Just by Eber Ayardin. Later, when it's making a second mention of it, it gives you more detail. Why? It would seem to be more appropriate. Right at the introduction, when you're telling us where it happened, you should give me a full description. And the answer is, in the first Pasuk, the Torah precisely does not want to mention anything of an identity other than this place is at the, at the threshold of Eretz Yisrael. It's on the other side of the Jordan. Not to give you any sense that this is still part of a previous state. This is already the new, this is the introduction to the land in Israel. That's why the Torah, on purpose, withholds the information, even though it's important information. The Torah withholds the information that it's Be'eretz Moab. Even though it's leaving you wondering where they are, because the Torah very much wants you to get the sense of urgency that we're entering Eretz Yisrael, and this is what your business, this is your business right now. Your business is not to figure out where you are right now, but where you're going. It's all about the next stage. It's all about orientation for Eretz Yisrael. Later, once the Torah emphasized that and it drilled that message into you, now it can already tell you, Again, it's still a subtitle, but it will tell you we're in the other side of the Jordan. The second time it's not so important because you've kind of got, you're already set, your mind is already set about what the content of this discussion is. What Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, he's speaking to the generation that is going into Eretz Yisrael. So that's the answer. It's so simple, but very deep. Because this is exactly what relates to our generation right now. We're the last generation of exile. We are the Arvos Moab generation. We are the people that are standing at the end of the Galus, ready to go into Moshiach, into the Moshiach, the world. And sometimes we find it very hard to let go of fixing problems. For thousands of years, that's what we're doing. We run around the world fixing dark problems, fighting darkness, combating darkness, overcoming challenges. That's the life of Galus. And that's called the land of Moab. That's the idea of the 42 journeys. We go through life and continuously, Hashem keeps on changing the scene. We keep on getting other adversaries. We keep on getting other enemies. We keep on facing other different types of difficulties and challenges, trials and tribulations. And we, the Jewish people, triumph over all of it. We're in survival mode. We're surviving. And even if we're more than that, we're conquering. Surviving and conquering, combat, fighting, overcoming. Darkness, enemy, is very, very much part of our psyche. We live off it. We almost think that there's no meaning to life if we have no one to fight. The idea that we're going to live in peace and tranquility and in calmness and serving God and knowing our Creator and having the deepest intimate relationship without any interference... Sometimes it's very foreign. Not only foreign, 
but can even be intimidating in some way because we have no purpose in that. We're almost feeling like there's no reason to a life without problems. But that's exactly what the world of Mashiach is going to be, a life without problems, a life without Yetzirah, a life without forces of darkness, a life without problems to fix. It's a new existence, a new life. Is that bad? The truth is, that's why the truth, for that time, the world was created for. When God dreams of a world, and when God wants, when Hashem created the world, Hashem created the world for the time of Mashiach. For that deep connection that He will have with us, where that will be in problem-free. Darkness free. And that gives our Creator the highest, deepest pleasure when He will be able to spend and to reveal Himself to us in the deepest, godliest way. When we will cling and cleave and attach ourselves to Him without any alien thoughts, without any distractions, with all of our heart, when we will give Him all of our attention. The world was created for the time of Mashiach. Oh, you'll say, what are you talking about? Every single class we've given till now has always been about the ultimate is turning darkness into light, fighting, and you can't do all the, whatever you gain when you're a pure neshama in heaven and you have no inter, inter, nobody's bothering you is all really superficial and it's not so deep and the deepest sparks of holiness are buried in darkness and only we convert the lowest. That's when we extract these sparks and that's when we, we're elevated to the infinite lights of Tohu, which is the uh, all of Chas see this that we've spoken about till now <laughs> almost all the classes and that is all about wow we have to turn the darkest stuff over to light but the question is that is that the ultimate purpose is that really where it's at or is that just to help us facilitate the deepest relationship when there is no problems anymore In other words, does God want the wrestling with the darkness? Does God want the tension, the difficulties, the hardships, the struggle? No. Hashem wants the deepest depth of connection that He has with each and every single one of us when we study His Torah and do His mitzvahs and we cleave and bond to Him with every fiber of our being. That's what He wants. But he wants that to be on the deepest level possible. In order for us to open up that our connection to him should not be superficial, external. It should come from the essence of our being. We should have opened up our soul and exposed our core, core, deepest um, 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 core of truth of who we are at our core and that there is nothing else to us but our desire to cleave to him and everything else possible is something that is literally meaningless to us in order for us to be at that stage we first need to struggle with darkness we first need to go through the ringer we first need to be faced with every possible distraction with every possible interference in our relationship when we go through all those hardships then when we will connect to him it will be the deepest highest connection eventually but he doesn't want, the purpose is not the middle stage, the purpose is the final complete oneness. 
So let's use a human relationship as an example for that. You know? A couple meet, they date, they meet in the early stages of getting to know each other and even when they get married, they're in love with each other. He'll do everything for her, she'll do everything for him. Yeah? We don't know. When everything is exciting, when there is the, when, when is the excitement of the romance, when everything is new, yeah. Once they're married three months, six months, eight months, ten months, and friction starts to come up, his interests and her interests begin to, uh, begin to infringe on one each other. And in order to, to accommodate my wife, accommodate my spouse, I need to let go of certain things that are dear to me. I have to overcome certain, certain, certain elements. I have to figure out what is more important to me, things that I'm so attached to or my connection to my loved one. Who is deeper in my soul? I have a hobby, I love this, but for whatever reason, it's not working out with my wife. It's not working out with my husband. Do I drop this for my wife or not? Who's more important? How deeply connected am I? Is it just superficial as long as I'm, you're making me comfortable, you're making me feel good, I love you, but at the moment you're a little challenging, I can't find a place in my soul to accommodate you even when, even when it seems like you're a little annoying? Right? So that's the struggle, that's the struggle. A relationship of a romantic couple in the early times of their life is fantastic, it feels great, it's not deep, it's not real, it's not a connection of essence to essence. It's very superficial. Every couple, most couples, it takes a few good fights. No mitzvah to make the fight uh, into a major fight, but there is friction, there's difficulties, there's challenges. And then there are circumstances in life that throw the relationship, throw a monkey wrench in the relationship, challenge the relationship. Difficulties with children, difficulties with Parnassah, difficulties with family members, difficulties, all the struggles and hardships that come and threaten the relationship. And sometimes they send the relationship on a spin. Sometimes it looks like, God forbid, the two of them will have to split up. Sometimes they're fighting cats and dogs and you think that, forget about it, this marriage can't be saved, it's horrible. But if they stay at it and if they stay committed, and they work the issues through deeper because they know that they went under the chuppah when they went under the chuppah they committed and, they, and that they're one, they're, they're one neshama and they're connected on a much deeper level than their consciousness and that what appeals to them externally there is a very deep essential bond and they know that and because they know that they work to work out the differences they work how to stretch themselves beyond their limit Overcoming, overcoming, and overcoming. And they might have a stormy marriage for 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years. But meet them 30 years, and there are 40 years in their relationship. Their love for each other, their appreciation, the depth of, of, their, of their oneness is incredible. Because there was all the struggle and all the strife and all the difficulties. Now they're deeply married. Are you going to say that people get married for the fights? Wow, I love it. The thrill of it. God forbid. I'm getting married because of the struggle. I'm getting married so I can appreciate the moment of I'm so sorry when I hurt my wife. Or the reconciliation after a fight. No one, that's not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is the golden years of retirement, if you might, I don't mean that retirement. It's that maturity of the relationship where you're never fighting anymore because you just won. 
And there's such a deep connection between the two that they just are inseparable from each other. That's, that's the goal. That's where you want to get to. You will never get there from romance. There needs to be challenges. There needs to be difficulties that threaten it. There needs to be some storms. And when you weather the storms, one after another and another and another and another, the more and the deeper they are, and sometimes challenges to a couple's love and to a commitment between a couple go so deep, touch at the deepest, deepest core of human psyche, where it means giving everything up for my, for my love, for my wife, for my, for my husband. It's very, very difficult and very hard. But... Those who manage, those who survive, make it through, reach a level of connection. We hope that they reach a level of connection where they look back at their hardships and they, it looks so foolish now. It looks so, it, it looks so superficial because they realize how deeply one they are and how it was never a question. Even though it could have been that they yelled at each other that God forbid that they want out of the marriage. Could be they even mentioned something like that. But you know what? Now they realize how utterly insane it was. Because now they've reached such a deep oneness. The purpose is for this oneness. And if they're living in oneness and there's no problems and if they meet someone who says it's not good that you have no problems in your marriage. Let's have a fight once in a while. Let's, let's, let's seek a problem. That's ridiculous. You don't seek it. You don't need it. You had it. And now you've matured past it. Moshiach is when we discover our deep connection. We have discovered our connection with God. There's nothing in the world that can interfere in our relationship. There's nothing that can hurt us. There's nothing that can disturb us. There's nothing that can bother us. And we are just deeply in love and we're living and connecting to each other on the highest way of Torah and mitzvahs, which, which express only goodness and only attachment without the distractions, without the difficulties. But who are the ones doing it? A people who went through trials and tribulations of 2,000 years of difficulties in their marriage. God mistreated us, at least it looks like, you know, the persecutions, the suffering. The Just yesterday I was reading online I don't know, uh, oh yeah, somehow something came up that I was reading about uh, uh, when the Jews were expelled from England. I don't know why, I don't know what triggered that. I read about the Jews being expelled from England in the year 12-something. And from there, I started looking and I was looking through all expulsions from different places. I thought maybe England was the first place the Jews were expelled from. And then I went through all, and it's like, it's ferocious, ferocious. Just read, and I read, I'm reading this guy in Austria, this guy, uh, this, this Schmegegi, I don't know what the guy's name was, Duke something, had all the Jews kicked out of, uh, out, of, out, of, out, of, out, of, out of Austria. He had 91 men burnt at the stake and 120 women alive. Why? Because they, uh, the only business that Jews were able to do was money lending. They didn't give them any other option. And then he owed them so much money, so he figured the best way that he can expel. So they, they try to first force baptize them. This is in 14, this is before the, the Jews expelled from Spain, in the early 1400s in Austria. It's a story I didn't even know about. And you go through city after city, country after country, persecution and bloodshed. And then we're faced with what? We're faced with, with assimilation. We're faced with 
a modern world. We're faced, we're faced with poverty. We're safe, faced with anti-Semitism. We're faced with, with every kind of possible thing that should have, could have destroyed and make, made an absolute certainty that there wouldn't be one Jew putting on tefillin today or one Jewish woman lighting Shabbos candles. And yet we're intact. Jews across the world are thriving. Shuls are thriving. Kosher food everywhere. Mikvah everywhere. Shabbos everywhere. It's amazing what we've been through. Our commitment to God is so solid, so durable, so absolute. We went through every possible storm and we're Jewish. And then there comes a time when God says, okay, the storms are over. You've proven to me how Jewish you are. And I've also proven to myself how I can't let go of you. Even though so many times you upset me, I still keep on coming back to you. I can't be without you, God says. And Moshiach is the time when we reach that stage of retirement, so to speak, where we're not anymore in the struggle and in the difficulties. We're just enjoying each other's company on the deepest, highest level. And we're living in a world of absolute goodness. And that's what God, and that is the highest, deepest, inner, essential pleasure that God had when God created the world. He envisioned that pleasure that he's going to have from us in the days of Mashiach. But again, had we not gone through the problems and the darknesses and all the difficulties, then we would never reach that level of attachment and connection. So this is kind of a, a, it's a, it's a passageway, it's a tunnel that we have to go through so that we can come out on the other side into the days of light and into the days, into the beautiful time of Mashiach. It takes, however, a certain mind alteration. Because for people that have been living and born of this, and not only were we born like this, but our parents and grandparents and great-great-parents, where our entire sense of accomplishment is, is, is what? Is fighting Sahara. Overcoming dark things, fight, overcoming the anti-Semite, over fight, fighting this, surviving. Right? This is the way we've been living for hundreds of years. Where there must be a problem, there must be a challenge, or else there's no meaning. To be able to sit down and quell in ashray, literally, quell in ashray. Imagine that. Imagine opening up a siddur and getting lost for six hours and saying ashray. And then waking up, you have no idea that six hours passed. Not because you dozed off. Because with the words of Ashrei are so thrilling and so sweet and so unbelievably enjoyable when you realize that this incredible this incredible infinite God who is so praised, the, the, the one that's that is good and he creates a gazillion creatures and, and takes care of them all, sustains them all, and he's my husband. And the nachas and the enjoyment and the deep sensation that comes from that has made me not even realize that six hours went by. Imagine that. You're not running out of shul to fix the world's problems. You're just enjoying intimacy with God. You're enjoying Torah. You're mesmerized by Torah. You're captivated by God's infinite wisdom in the Torah. Without temptation, without anything making you tired, without anything distracting that you feel over, that you need to overcome, just enjoying the depth of the connection. So how do we know from God's perspective what God really, really wants? Maybe God's ultimate objective is the struggle. Maybe He has no pleasure in times of tranquility. Maybe that's only reward for us, but Hashem's pleasure is only from the struggle. So let me share with you an interesting midrash. 
The Medrash says in the end of the second chapter in Medrash Rabbah, Bereshus Rabbah, in the end of Perek Beis. Uh, it's it's, it's Perek Beis, uh, Siv Zion or whatever. Rabavu v'Rabchia Rabbah. Rabavu Amar Rabavu says, Mitchilas b'riyase shel oilam, Tzafa Kodesh Baruch Hu b'maseyem shel tzadikim. In the beginning of the creation of the world, God looked at the deeds of the tzaddikim. And God looked at the actions of the wicked. Hashem saw both. He knew. He knew there will be good and there will be bad in this world. There will be good and evil. As it says in the Pasuk, the earth was chaos and and in Yiddish, you used to say, Pustin Ledik, the world was empty and, and desolate. Elo Maseyem Shalrushayim, these are the deeds of the wicked. Vanity, emptiness, meaningless. God said, Let there be light. Elo Maseyem Shalrushayim, these are the deeds of the Tzadikim. Full of light, full of selflessness, full of godly illumination. And here the Medrash makes one of the most stunning statements ever. <laughs> Hear these words of the Medrash. Does anybody have an idea which one God wants? I don't know which God wants. You hear? The Medrash says, God before creates the world sees the deeds of the wicked and he sees the, 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 the work of the tzaddikim, of the righteous. And that's light and that's darkness. This is tov abo and this is you know, confusion and chaos and suffering and pain and misery. And this is light. And we wouldn't know which one God wants because so, both of things are happening in the world. What's giving God nachas? What's giving him satisfaction? The Nazis or the Jewish people? Who's giving him nachas? Who's giving him na, uh, uh, nachas? The goodness that is done by all the righteous people or the wickedness, the cruelty that is done but perpetrated by wicked people? I don't know. So the Medrash says, well, you know what? The next words of the Pasuk, it says, wait, in Bamasa Elu, I don't know if God, Chafet, what does Chafet mean? I'll say Chafet. Chafet doesn't mean just he, he, he wants. Chafet means he desires desperately, with a deep desire. In Bamasa Elu, in these actions, then Bamasa Elu are in these actions. What is the Medrash thinking? God would be a tyrant, God forbid? He wants cruelty, he wants suffering? The Medrash says, I don't know. But then it says, God saw that light is good. The, the verse says, God saw that light is good. Ah, now we know that he likes the word. He likes better. He prefers, he prefers the charity of, of, of the giving, the loving people. He prefers them over the cruel, wicked people who take a thrill in torturing and... and, 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 and uh, Murder and who knows what. God likes, he prefers the words, the, 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 the world of tzaddikim. So there's various different explanations on this medrash. How can it even be a question? But one of the explanations that are given in Hasidus, there is no question that God wants good, he doesn't want bad. But the question is what kind of good does he want? There is good that's originally good. And these are the deeds of tzaddikim. The righteous. We know tzaddikim don't even have yetzahara. They don't have an evil inclination. So there's no struggle. And there's good. And their deeds are so good. Because when there's no yetzahara, it's like so sweet. It's so selfless. It's so pure. It's so noble. It's so... It's, it's, it's incredible. It's 
infinitely good. And then there are the deeds of the wicked. What, is, what does it mean by the deeds of the wicked? It means sin. Yeah, it does. But it means once the people who do sins, which is most of us, and do not the best stuff, but after we do them, we feel remorse, we feel bad, we feel horrible, and then we do tshuva. And we know there is a rule, and that's an amazing rule in Torah, that when we do tshuva properly, that means when we do tshuva because we feel very far from God, because of the sins that we do, and we yearn for Him, and we, and we thirst for Him, and we long for Him more than the tzaddik, because we're, our heart and our soul is in such pain, and we want to get close, and that's the power of the bal tshuva, then we know that the, the bal tshuva tra- goes up higher than the tzaddik. And one more than that, the wicked deeds that we did, even the wickedness, even the sins becomes merit. So now the question, a whole different question. Now the question is, which mitzvahs does God want? Does He want the mitzvahs that are mitzvahs, or does He want the sins that become mitzvahs? Which one are dear to Him? Oh, now that's a competition already. Now I understand. It can't be that the Medrash is asking, does God want wicked? want evil that's out of the question but we know that when evil turns to good it's even a brighter goodness than the good itself it's called Yisrena or Menachoshech the advantage of light that comes from darkness that the, when light comes from darkness it is brighter than light that's originally light so here the question is why did God create the world? What was his impetus to create? Did God ultimately desire? What's the final product? Did he desire the work that involves of turning darkness to light? Or does God desire a time of just pure goodness? Which one does he really love more? What's the ultimate purpose? Something to really ponder. There's something to say about the beauty of the tzaddikim who never did anything bad in this world. They're so holy, they're so God. We admire them, we love them, and they're lovable. And there's something to say about the people who went through the darkness and the struggle, and then they rehabilitated themselves. They transformed themselves. Like the Rambam says, this guy is so beloved by God because yesterday he was so far, and he has so much Yetzirah to overcome, and he's an unbelievable hero because now he fought his Yetzirah and overcame all of it and turned his life around. Wow! Which one is more desirable? And the answer is God wants the, the work. The ultimate is Hashem wants the work of the tzaddikim. That Hashem wants goodness without darkness. Hold it, but what does that mean? Nah, so but the, in order that the work of the tzaddikim should be the deepest good, it has to follow first the struggles of the wickedness and the darknesses and so on and so forth. So it's almost like Hashem wants us first to be bali tshuva and then eventually to become tzaddikim. And then when we become tzaddikim, that's the ultimate good. We need to go through a time of difficulty and hardship. We need to have that, that tension, like I spoke earlier in a marriage. The ultimate, deepest love will come through when there is trials and tribulations, difficulties in every marriage according to what, uh, what, uh, what, what, how, how they figure it out, the couple. But the purpose of it, what you envision, when you're really thinking, if you, and most of, you know, at least myself, we get married, you're very young, we don't even think much, but... People, you want to get married. You want to find real deep connection. You don't want to be alone on the deepest level. And you want to find a deep connection to be one with someone. 
And what you're looking for is the oneness, not the friction. It will take some friction to get to that deeper oneness. And that's the reason that will explain when we are talking about over here in the Pasuk, why when the Jewish people are standing by Elad Vardim and ready to go into Eretz Yisrael, why we're not focused anymore on Arvos Moav. Arvos Moav represents the struggle with darkness. As I mentioned earlier, when they went through the desert, each place presented itself. Last week we discussed it in the class. Remember we spoke, each place had its unique different challenge and they had to change the spark. I'm sorry, elevate the spark, strip away the klipa. Some places it was challenges with, 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 with negative impulses. Other places it was, it was unhealthy fears and anxieties. Other places it was feelings of arrogance that they overcame them when they had to fight the unique spiritual klipas. And each place had its own set of circumstances. In each place, there was combat. There was difficulty. Can they still serve God? And when did they come to their most difficult situation in the entire desert? What was the most the hardest one? When they came to the plains of Moab. Moab is the most difficult klipa. That's why Mashiach comes from Moab. Because the greatest light is buried in the greatest darkness. So Rus, the mother she comes from, she's from Moab. Moab is a very dark klipa. That could be one of the reasons guys said, don't start up with Moab. They're just too difficult, too dangerous. According to Hasid, according to Kabbalah, Moab is the, the power of Chachma, of the unholy. Chachma is the most potent power that there is. It's the, it's the germ of an idea. It's the nucleus of the unholy. Very powerful, a very, very dangerous clip. And in Moab itself, they weren't just in Moab. They were in the, in the Arvos Moab. Simply it means the plains of Moab. But Arvos also comes from the word Erev. They were, by Erev, by Yiboker, they were in the darkness of Moab. In Moab itself, they were suddenly overcome by the extreme darkness of Moab. Perhaps we can see today the Chachma de Klippa is a world that worships science. Science of Klippa, science. Secular disciplines, secular sciences, which fight in many ways truths of Torah, truths of holiness, of godliness. And it comes with all kinds of sophisticated arguments, sophisticated arguments, the most incredible sophisticated arguments. I got so angry the other day in Israel. We see right before Mashiach comes, they just passed a rule yesterday that um, same-gender couples could adapt children, could adopt a baby. I'm saying, okay, person, you want everybody to validate your, your, your person has got, you know, everybody's got their set of child, I'm not judging anybody. You feel uncomfortable with the, with, 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 with the state that you're in, you need everybody to validate that you're married, fine. Why take an innocent baby who has a life ahead of them and put them into a house where they're not going to see the normalcy of a, which goes against the basic fabric of the way God created the world. That a man sh should marry a woman and this is the family unit and this is the basis of holiness and procreation and families and a continuation of God's the world. And, and, and to take, so I understand, you, haven't, you don't want to be, okay, do your thing, but a, a, a little innocent baby, why is the baby's fault? You're going to corrupt this little, this is like Sodom. What do you think, Sodom didn't have sophisticated arguments? 
And these progressive, sophisticated arguments are like this, this like, and, 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 then, and it's argued with such strength and with such thing that it makes you feel like you're an idiot if you don't agree with it. And these are the darknesses of Moab. This is like the last seconds before the Giyula. We're faced with these ideological corruptions and extremely dark elements that threaten the very, the very basic of a, basis of a civilization. Moab. Fundamental ideas that are just off. Jews are in Arvais Moab. And that's why we find what happened when the Jews came to Arvas Moab. But 100,000 Jews were, died because of the sin. They went with the Moabite girls. They started bowing down to the, to the, uh, to the uh, idol. You know that idol? I just want to give an example. The idol that they used to bow down, they used to defecate in front of the idol. So then you wonder, like, what are you, what are you talking about? It's like, like, what, what, like normal people? Normal, intelligent people defecating to an island. That's your God, and you're defecating to... I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's so insane. It's so despicable. It's so horrific. It's so... It's so... The end. So how's it possible? And how's it possible? The Jews went after it! Okay, because they wanted the girls. But even that, it, it, it doesn't make sense. The answer is, the Yetzirah you're faced with you're power, and we're, not, we're not powerless. We have the power to, to fight it. But that's that. In other words, even something as crazy and as wacky starts becoming normal. If that's your challenge, if that's the Yetzirah, there's all kinds of, all kinds of, what we, I'm sure they call themselves those days the progressives, who that you have to bow down to the, and defecate in front of the thing. And there was all kinds of sophisticated explanations of why this is the right way to do it. Anybody that doesn't do this is backward uh, thinking. Such a clipper. Why am I saying that? Because the moment Mashiach comes, the moment the, 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 the silliness that's, gonna, that's now, the last darknesses before Mashiach comes, dissipate and disappear, we're going to realize how foolish it was even the, 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 even the discussion about all of this. How ridiculous, how, how, un, how, how insane it is. And yet, Eretz Yisrael, a, a country of Am Chachayim V'Navim, passes such a rule. That legally, you can take little babies and, 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 and put them through this, this, this and they're going to suffer. Their entire life, they're going to suffer. Because if it's unnatural, and it's unnatural, it's essentially unnatural. As much as you're going to try to tell yourself a thousand times that this is normal, it's still not normal. And don't put it on this poor little child. So that's Arvos I'm just giving an example what Arvos but that is all the past. There's a certain point where we turn around and we have to start preparing ourselves for an era, for a time that we're not struggling with darkness. And that's where Moshe Rabbeinu is, is now turning around. It's about face. You are facing the exile. You are facing the trauma, the difficulties, the hardship. And you were, you were, you were, you, we were all wired in our psyche that that's what it's all about. And if we're waking up one day and we don't feel the eight Sahara, we feel something's wrong with us. <laughs> it's almost like, like well, what, there's, nothing, there's nothing to to do combat with. No, no, no. 
Maybe it's a taste of Mashiach. Maybe Mashiach is already about to enter into the room. And you're given the capability to start living in Mashiach's days. A problem-free life. No anxiety, no difficulties, no hardship. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you do a mitzvah without, with all your kavanah. And you daven with all your being. And your kindness is and you look at every person with love. You look at every Jew with an infinite admiration and love and, and without judge, judging, without, without just pure love and pure... So it could be when Mashiach comes. So we have to switch from the darknesses of Moab and live at the banks of the Jordan. And this is what the Rebbe told us 30 years ago. Yidin, stop focusing already now on fixing problems. Start acclimating yourself to the life of Mashiach. When Mashiach will come, we will live a problem-free existence. Start imagining that world and living that world and tapping into its vibrations. Because the vibrations of Mashiach are here already in the world for the last 30 years. Mashiach is knocking on the door for the last 30 years. The words of the Rebbe were that we're standing at the threshold of the redemption. And therefore now, Moshe Rabbeinu says to us, it's no more about the, the, the struggle. It's just about being a Jew. Just about Torah and mitzvahs. On the high, celebrate your connection with God. Devote yourself to study Torah. And know that that's all you're going to be doing when Mashiach comes. Get used to it. And you don't have to imagine that you don't, you don't have any patience for it anymore. Guess what? Your Yitzhahar is melting already. You do have patience. And if you're still holding on to the Yitzhahar, maybe you're creating the Yitzhahar that doesn't exist anymore. I know it's a stretch for the imagination for us to believe that. But maybe, maybe it doesn't even, it's not really itching us anymore. Like I give the example many times in the past of a person who's, they call it phantom pain. Phantom pain is when a person loses a limb, God forbid, through an amputation. And, uh, but their brain still has not yet disconnected from that limb. So if they had, let's say, uh, uh, an itch on their toes, they can still be itching the toes that don't exist anymore. Imagine if the Yetzirah was knocked off already a while ago, but we're still itching it that because in our brain we're still believing that it exists. It's ridiculous. So once I, I thought of it and I said, listen, I don't know if this is true, but I think this is it. If you have a real foot and you have a real itch, and you itch your toes if you have athlete's foot, at least it gives you a, a, instant gratification. It feels good for a moment. Obviously, it's not the best thing to do. It's best to go treat it. Go find that antifungal cream or whatever it is to help your itch. If not, you're just going to itch your foot, but it gives you at least a satisfaction. But if you don't have a foot anymore... God forbid, and you're itching a foot that doesn't exist. So it's not even going to give you an instant gratification. It's not going to give you anything. So there was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Yekosia Liepier. He came to Chabad. He came to Liozhna for the first time. And he wasn't going to wait online. He was a burning chassid. He wasn't going to wait online to go into the Alter Rebbe. He looked in the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe lived in a two-story building. The only house in Liozhna that was two stories. He barraged, somehow he got into the house, and he ended up in the Alter Rebbe's room. Alter Rebbe was up learning Torah at night, and he came in without an appointment, without being allowed in. 
And the Alter Rebbe looked up and he said, no. And he said, Rebbe hakmir up the linkezait. <laughs> he knew what to ask. He said, Rebbe, sever my left side. He, he's talking about the Yitzhahara. Hakmir up the linkezait. I can't do it. I don't want it. Knock it off. And the Alter Rebbe said, Ebishteris, I think the words, I think this, Hashem, it says, you enliven everybody, shine, you know, shine in M, illuminate in him, shine your light, you know, when the Alter Rebbe says to the Ebishter, Ebishter, you enliven everybody, give him life, what did he mean? The Alter Rebbe was plugging him in. Where was he plugging him in? He was plugging him into the place where Tzaddikim's heart are plugged in. The Alter Rebbe was plugging this chassid. Suddenly, he wasn't ready for it. The Alter Rebbe, because he came in the middle of the night, the Alter Rebbe, I'll give you my explanation on the story for a moment, but the way, I, again, the simple is that the Alter Rebbe was saying to him, the Alter Rebbe took him, he begged for it in the middle of the night, so the Alter Rebbe basically said, okay, he took his soul and plugged him into the consciousness of Tzaddikim. And suddenly this chassid had a different heart. He became literally a fire for God. He started feeling love for Hashem that was so intense, so crazy. He was a different person. He suddenly, literally, he walked out over there and he had a different heart. He was a different person. His love for Hashem was so intense. His fear of God was like... But the interesting thing is, he had periods. It would suddenly come upon him and then it would leave him. And he would say, the tzaddik is gekumen and the tzaddik is gegangen. <laughs> he would say, the tzaddik came and the tzaddik left. Because he knew that he has this higher consciousness that suddenly comes upon him without his work, and then he's a different person. And sometimes it would leave. The reason it would leave, because it was never him, he didn't work on it. I'm thinking to the fact, and then there's a whole story, how he came back to the middle of the whole story. And he was, he's the example of the chassid who worked the hardest. There was no chassid in Chabad ever to work so hard to meditate on chassidus. And it was when he realized that it was a gift and he wasn't getting too far with the gift. He worked the hardest. He became the greatest mind of chassidus Chabad. The Mittler Rebbe wrote for him a book called Imre Bina for this chassid Rebbe Yekasiya Leapir. It's the hardest chassidus. He became a, before that the guy had a head, a klutz cup. He really, his head, he couldn't learn anything. But he became, okay. But why did the altar, my own interpretation, why did the altar, because the altar is so this guy doesn't have patience to wait online. Everybody comes to Yechidus, there's a line, get a line, there's a long line. That means there's the do, there's, you have to do your due, due diligence. You don't have patience to wait online. That means he, you don't, you, he saw right away, he's dealing with a person who doesn't want it, he wants the end goal without the work. And the altar wasn't going to be busy with this guy too much. He doesn't want to work, so he figured, how does he get him out of the room? <laughs> He just quickly plugged him in. You want to be a tzaddik? Be a tzaddik. So he gave him tzaddikis. But what am I saying? What you see from the story, I'm bringing the story only for one point, is that this, that this chassid, he said, knock me off the left side. It disconnect. And he disconnected him. He pulled out the Yetzirah. The moment this evil Yetzirah is uprooted from the heart, we don't have it anymore. And he didn't have it anymore. So as we're entering the days of Mashiach, who says our left side has not yet been really disconnected? It's got to start somewhere. The spirit of impurity, God's going to move from the earth. It's got to start somewhere. It's going to start in the Jewish heart. 
And the Rebbe was telling us 30 years ago, we can start living like a tzaddik, but no one believes him. <laughs> so what happens if maybe we don't have Yetzirah, we're just kind of, because we had Yetzirah back then, we're still thinking we have it. And we're itching an itch that doesn't even exist anymore. So I'm not to take that literally to say that you really don't have any more Yetzirah, you just imagine. What I'm saying is let's start acclimating, let's start believing that we're entering into a new era and not be focused on our Vaismayav, but start being focused on Eila Advarim Ashadibar Moisha Be'ever Hayardin. We're standing poised Be'ever Hayardin. We have to look at, at our existence right now as the entranceway to the Giyula. This is what we have. And think about how are you going to live? What do you think? How, is, how are you going to live? What kind of patience are you going to have? What kind of um, davening are you going to have? What kind of Shabbos table are you going to have? How are you going to eat food? How are you going to be careful in your thoughts? You're not going to have to be careful. You're not going to distract. What kind, of, what kind of love are you going to... Think in 10 years after Mashiach comes. What kind of person are you going to be? And then think, so why not start living that now? A, a life just in the pursuit of goodness. No more fighting, no more dark stuff, just goodness. May we merit that uh, we should uh, take this to heart and, and may Hashem on His end pitch in and also reveal what He really desires. Because, you know, the Rebbe says something very, very, very shocking. Because, you know, in all the Sikhs, this is, by the way, what I'm sharing with you is a talk that I read today from the year 5748, Tavshem Memches, Parshat Devarim. It's a worthy sikha. It's a very deep sikha. It's very beautiful. Simple but deep. So over there, you know, when the Rebbe the Rebbe spoke, he would always give a hoira. He would give a hoira. What's a hoira? Hoira means directive. From this idea, what's the directive? You should start doing so and so. He's directing us, teaching us, inspiring us. Over here, the Rebbe says... In the footnote, he says, you should know that this is also a hayrah for Hashem also. God also is supposed to take this, take, take what, I am, what I'm saying over here in this, Hashem should also take it to heart. Here you see is where the tzaddik conducts the affairs. Tzaddik moishul b'yiras alakim. Tzaddik is kind of the, controlling kiviyachol, kiviyachol, I know it's hard to say. He has control even on the way God is conducting the affairs. Why? The Rebbe brings an amazing thing. How, how is God? Is God... Like, already prepared for Mashiach, or is Hashem still enjoying the Gullah struggle elements? It seems like he's still enjoying the struggle because he doesn't let go of it. He keeps on testing us and testing us with all kinds of darkness, with all kinds of difficulties. So is Hashem really ready already for retirement and for the good golden, golden good age? Or is God still, you know, in the mood of another, another bout with us, another test, another challenge, another, you know... So the Rebbe says both are true. The level of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the external level called HaKadosh Baruch Hu, gets a kick out of the struggle. He enjoys the struggle. And, 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 and in the Haggadosh of Pesach we say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu chishe v'saketz. We thank Baruch Shoyman Aftachoser. We say, blessed is the Ebrister. He keeps his promise. What does he keep his promise? That, the, that he calculated, and he put an end to the exile. We say, right, by Vihisha Amda. Baruch Shoyman after blessed. God kept his promise, we thank him. So the question is, does he deserve such a big thank you for keeping his promise? Every decent person is supposed to keep a promise. Oh, he kept his promise. What do you expect him not to keep his promise? So one of the explanations, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe says, 
is that because the nachas ruach that the Abishter has from our struggles, that's what he says, because the nachas ruach that the Abishter has from our struggles, it gives him so much satisfaction, it would be possible that he would keep on prolonging the exile longer and longer and longer and longer and give excuses why, it's, why he can justify it. So we thank God that God realized that he has to put an end. In Mitzrayim, after 210 years, enough. Even though it's so, he enjoys so much the idea that we're able to connect to him, even, doesn't enjoy our suffering, but the fact that we're able to connect to him even when there's so, every, the cards are stacked against us. That's the word of the previous Rebbe. Says the Rebbe. Says the Rebbe. Ebishter. I know that's true about you. But let me tell you something about yourself. This is what the Rebbe says to the Ebishter. What is he saying? He says, I know that there is a part of your psyche called HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in which the struggle is very meaningful. But the Rebbe says there's a deeper truth to you, Hashem. There is atzmos. Atzmos means you at your essence. And you at your essence, what do you really want? The golden years. What do you really want? You want the deep intimacy with your, with your beloved. You want the service in the Beis HaMikdash. You want Torah and mitzvahs the way it's going to be after Mashiach comes without struggle. That's what you really want. And then the Rebbe says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you got to move to the side for the essence. What does that mean? I'm just going to be brief. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is a certain projected state of, con- of, of godly personality, a certain projected state of divine consciousness. But it's not essence. It's a projected. It's part of the system. In the system, the struggle is very, very important. But there's something beyond the system, even beyond the divine system and the divine personality, and that is in the essence. And the Rebbe says, how does the Rebbe know? The Rebbe says from the Medrash, the Medrash says, what does God want? Ultimately, does he want the deeds of the wicked? Or does he want... And again, when we say the deeds of the wicked means the struggle of the wicked to flip the wickedness over to good. But even that, what does he really want? He wants the good. He wants the peace, the tranquility, the connection to Hashem of pure holiness and pure godliness. Not through darkness. And not holding. So even, this is amazing. I, when I read I said, wow. He's giving a, he's giving a directive. So again, <laughs> This whole idea of turning around, making an about a face, standing this way and turning this way, it's not only our struggle. It's so hard for us to become Mashiach conscious. Kiviyachal, so to speak, on the level of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, there is also that, that struggle because there's a part of him that's, that does enjoy the struggle and the exile. And that has to give away for something much deeper. What do you really want? It's like people go to therapy. People go to therapy, why? They, they're struggling with something. What does a therapist help you? Helps you re- remove the external and get deeper into yourself, to find your core self and what do you really, and then you can deal much better with external things that have kind of taken you hostage. So we need therapists. We need someone to help us work it through because we get caught up in the external streams of, of, of momentary feelings. So the therapist helps peel away the outer layer, get you to a more core self, 
and, and ask you deep questions of what, and, and then show you what you really want. That's not what you really want. What you really want is this. Ah, so they'll show you methods of how to express that in your life. That's what a good therapist will do. I'm not a therapist, but I would imagine. So the Abishter also <laughs> goes through that therapy to know what he really wants. And what does the Abishter really want? Aver Hayardain, Eretz Yisrael, Mashiach Ka'ula. So let's hope that the Abishter decides that this Tisha B'Av already, he's done with all the other, the fake, let's call it the fake Tisha B'Avs, the dark Tisha B'Avs, the sad Tisha B'Avs. And we should read Megillah's Eicha like we read Megillah's Esther. Everybody should be drunk. <laughs> Everybody should be drunk with joy. Everybody should be rolling on the streets, this Tisha B'Av, with happiness and laughter and incredible, infinite jubilation and happiness. And this is what Tisha B'Av was meant to be all along. Eberster, you don't need any more of the old Tisha B'Av. It's time to rule in the new Tisha B'Av. And you'll see that you will love this Tisha B'Av more than anything else. And we too will love it. So how many of us are ready to give up on sitting on the floor? How many of us are ready to say, I'm never going to take out that Echa, that Kinnis again? I'm not looking at the cat. I don't want the kinnis anymore. I don't want sadness. I don't want to sit and read Holocaust stories anymore. It was great. We needed to remember it, but that's it. Enough. We want to look out to the future. We want to look to the resurrection of the dead. We want to look into the days of light, into the days of the future glory, into the days of happiness and joy. That's what we want. And it's a struggle, because some people enjoy the sadness of Tisha B'Av. We have to let go of that and be ready for a new kind of Tisha B'Av, a new kind of Yom Tif. And we're ready to see that now.